Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Let me ask you a question. How does your favorite song make you feel? Music affects and changes people's lives. It invokes memories. The first gig you went to, the first record you bought, that song from your school days, or the song you danced to at your wedding, or even your first kiss. It gets you through the worst times and the best of times. Music has always played an important part in my life. First and foremost, I'm a music fan but I've been lucky enough to have interviewed some of the biggest names in music, combining my career with my passion. Each week, I chat to some of my favorite artists to talk about the tracks of their lives and more. I'm Kylie Olsen, and this is Music and Me. When I first met Moby in the early 2000s, he was a different Moby to the one that I met at his house in LA for Music and Me. I've always described him as an introverted outrovert, someone that is shy, but not afraid to speak his mind and voice his opinions. It's well documented that his wild partying ways are long behind him, and it suits him. The quieter life, life where music is still very prevalent, but isn't the main focus for him. If you follow him on Instagram, then you'll know what I'm alluding to. He's an activist animal lover and avid Trump hater that also happens to be one of the most important dance music figures of our generation. We always connected over our love of rock and metal so that's why I wanted to sit down with him in the glorious California sun to discuss his new book. Yes, he's working on a sequel to the 2016 Porcelain which focused on his pre-fame New York years, his love of metal and so much more. So, Moby, hello. Hi. How are you doing? Um, I mean, it's winter, and I'm in Los Angeles, and it's a beautiful sunny day, so maybe that's trite and paltry, but it makes me happy, so I'm doing well. <laughs> I know, it's weird thinking it's in winter and we're sitting in the glorious sunshine. Yeah. Um, so, what was the one song, or what is the one song that reminds you of being at home and as a kid? If that song was to come on the radio now, what would that be? Hmm, it's a good question because childhood, you know, it starts when you're born and ends what when you're 18 mm -hmm. legally. So during that time, I mean, I spent a lot of time growing up listening to AM radio in the car with my mom. And this was the 70s into the 80s, but mainly the 70s. So it was the age of the Eagles and Elton John and, you know, disco but for some reason, the song that comes to mind is um, Bad Moon Rising by Creedence Clearwater Revival. Because even though it had come out in the 60s, it was such a staple on the radio when I was growing up. You know, there were these songs that you just heard over and over again year after year. And so, oddly enough, it would be Bad Moon Rising. What do you think of that song? Uh, you know, it's interesting. The first music I ever loved was Creedence Clearwater Revival. 
when I was three years old. I heard Proud Mary on the in on our car radio, and I fell in love with it. And then I became, you know, when I was a teenager, I became a punk rocker, and then a new waver, and then I got into hip hop and dance music, and sort of lost interest in Creedence Clearwater Revival. But recently, I've gone back and listened to Creedence's greatest hits, and just been reminded one of how many iconic, amazing songs they had, but also just sort of like the phenomenal simplicity, like the, the sort of inspired simplicity of so much of their songs. Credence Clearwater Revival there. Now, what was the first song you ever bought? Can you remember that? Yeah, the first song I ever paid money for was a song called Convoy. It was by C.W. McCall, mm -hmm. and it was a song about CB radios and truck driving. And it was a big hit on AM radio in the 70s. And when I was 10 years old, I remember taking a dollar to our local big box store, which is called Bradley's. And I bought the seven-inch single of Convoy and listened to it about 40 times in a row when I got home. Do you listen to that song now at all? I've gone back. It turns out they actually made a movie based on the song. Really? The song was such a big hit that they made a movie and Chris Christopherson was in it. And so they made this movie about truck driving based on this song, Convoy. I've worked with Chris Christopherson before. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, he sung on one of my songs that hopefully I'll release at some point. And I was being honored at a fundraiser in New York a few years ago, and he came and sang. And when did you work with him on the song? What, what, what album were you recording at the time? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. No. How, um, how long ago was it? About a year ago. Oh, okay. And so I'm hoping to release it at some point, but I don't know when. Oh, what's, what type of music is it? What well, is it? What genre? that I wrote with Mark Lanigan mm -hmm. um, from Queens and from Screaming Trees. And I sent it to Chris. And so hopefully when I release it, it'll be a duet between him and Mark Lanigan. Okay. Is it a little bit country? No, it's very slow and almost folky and sad. Um, when did you first realize that music was going to play an important part in your life? Well, when I was growing up, music, as is true now, was ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this was the 70s and, or the 60s into the 70s, so music was in every restaurant, every car radio. My mom and all her friends played records at home. And there was never a time that I didn't love music. Uh, but it was so ubiquitous. It was like, it was like air, you know, it was like oxygen. So in a way, I didn't appreciate it because it was just such a part of the fabric of my existence. And then time passed and I started playing guitar. And then I realized, oh, I don't just have to listen to music. I can also make music. And that prompted a sort of almost existential reevaluation where I then realized, you know, I could in theory somehow play music and make that my life and make a living from it. You know, I never expected to have a career really. I never expected to make a lot of money from it. It was all just the idea that I could spend my life involved in this world of music that I love so much. And so you mentioned the guitar. So was it rock music 
that you kind of fell in love with and then the electronica came a bit later? Yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, listening to Led Zeppelin and The Doors and The Stones and all the classic rock, which at the time wasn't called classic rock because mm-hmm. these were all bands who were currently making records, you know. So, um, but that's what I heard a lot on the radio when I started playing guitar my guitar teacher played in a heavy metal band, so we learned Jimi Hendrix songs and we learned Van Halen songs. And then when I was 13 or 14, um, I heard The Clash and Elvis Costello and really fell in love with new wave and punk rock. So stopped playing guitar solos and started playing Sex Pistols covers. Okay, so who's your guitar hero? Guitar hero, I have a few. Um, the two who come to mind, they're a little bit obscure. One is uh, Tom Verlaine, who is in the band Television, mm-hmm. and the other is Dr. No from Bad Brains. I think they're t- probably my two favorite guitar players. Oh, my God. Yeah, they're interesting. I don't, I've never heard anyone mention those guys well, before. Very melodic. Yeah. I mean, when you listen to Bad Brains, it's, of course, really fast, but like the guitar solos especially are so beautiful and melodic. Especially there's a song called Band in DC and there's a guitar solo in the middle of it that's really just one of my favorite guitar solos of all time. And for television, it was um, the guitar solo in the song Marky Moon. Okay. And I doubt that you can play the whole of Marky Moon because it's 11 minutes long, but the guitar solo is pretty special. And so you were doing really well um, you know, when you first started making music. You started to make a few waves in the music pond with Go, and then you decided to change your sound slightly and and probably go back to being, you know, the, the music that influenced you as a kid with um, the album Animal Rights. When you, and it kind of, it was, it almost finished your career in a way. When you think about that album now, what, what do you think of it? Uh, I mean, in hindsight, I'm happy that I made a strange record that I loved that no one else seemed to like. Um, had it, if it had killed my career, and if I was currently, you know, working in a gas station, you know, pumping gas and selling beef jerky, I might feel differently about it. But now, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting special record. I mean, insofar as I can say that about something I made. But because it's so dark and so intense, and in a way, I sort of see it as a badge of honor that no one liked it. Mm. I love the way it starts. It's completely different to the rest of the album, isn't it? It's got it's kind of a bit slow, and and then all of a sudden it really kicks in a bit later. Yeah, certainly, it's a very unconventional approach to album making. Yeah, it's not it's not the sound that you know everyone knows knows you for. Um, and so then obviously the big album came after that, the one that put you out there and everyone realised who you were. And then now you've just released, or last year you released your book, Porcelain, which was from, which documents the period from 88 to, no, 89 to 99, wasn't yeah, it? What was it like revisiting your past? I mean, it's interesting because writing a memoir or an autobiography even if it's never published, it's still an amazing tool for, I guess, how can I describe it? Like for self-awareness, yeah. 
because when we're living through things while they're happening, we rarely have much objectivity, either about ourselves or the people around us or the environment in which we live. But when you revisit something, especially when you have to write it down, that happened 10, 20, 30 years ago, you can see, I mean, first of all, you have the, the benefit of, I guess, hindsight, um, where like, like, for example, like in the book Porcelain, you know, like I was writing about Bill Clinton running for president, but I was writing this in 2015, where now Bill Clinton has not been president for 15 years, but remembering what it was like when I was like, I was young, I was in New York, it was the beginning of my career, Bill Clinton hadn't been elected president, dance music was just only a few years old in that current form, and there was such an innocence and a naivete around it. But the thing with childhood or the thing with young adulthood, when you're going through it, you don't see it as being innocent and naive, yeah. it's just all you've ever known. But then as you get older, you look back and you see even the, the bad stuff becomes endearing. You know, like the worries I, like kind of like the worries you had when you're seven years old. When you're seven years old, you take them very seriously. But then you become an adult and you look back at it and it's, it's charming. It's almost cute, you know, these, these worries that we've had in the past for the most part. I mean, there are some things that clearly are terrible regardless of how old you are, but for mm -hmm. the most part, it's really fascinating gaining the objectivity that comes with looking back at something that happened a long time ago. And do you think there'd be a book number two? Yeah, book two. I, I'm actually finishing the manuscript right now. Wow. I don't know if it's good. Like the book Porcelain, I actually think ended up being pretty good. Um, this book is, it's structurally kind of unique and challenging. Where, because I'd written two books. And the first book was childhood to about age 20. And then the second book was the follow-up to Porcelain, which was 1999 to 2009. And rather than put them as two books, what I've done is sort of fold them together. So there's okay. a chapter from the 21st century going back to a chapter from childhood. And it's there's sort of a little bit of temporal whiplash or temporal dislocation going on. I hope that people are patient with it because by the end, it makes a lot of sense. But in the beginning, it can be a little challenging. How did you know where to go with this book, though? Like, did you have help? Or was it you just sitting down in a room on your own and going, actually, I think I can do it like this? Well, at first, I just wrote the follow-up to the book Porcelain, which was 99 to 2008. Mm -hmm. And it became really repetitive. Yeah. And so then I thought, OK, well, let me do what most memoirists do and write a book about childhood. And so I wrote about childhood. And it was interesting, but maybe not all that interesting. And then I thought a lot of times, and this is very self-evident, but like who people are as an adult, the choices they make, especially, I mean, you interview a lot of like rock musicians. So you see people who have really like been confronted with the consequences of the choices they've made. Yeah. You know, whether it's terrible tattoos or viral diseases or unwanted children or lost limbs or whatever, or just bad relationships, you know, like we make terrible decisions. Yeah. And usually when someone makes a terrible decision, you kind of glibly say, oh, well, maybe childhood affected that. But I thought this would be interesting to watch 
someone, me, while I was making terrible decisions and then providing the context to really see where they were coming from. You know, like, so looking at terrible adult decisions and then contextualizing it with childhood experience. We'll be hearing more from Moby after the break where he talks about this. And my activism, whether it's, you know, election activism, political activism, animal activism, environmental activism, these are just things that seem really important to me. You've, I mean, you've certainly changed over the years, haven't you? Obviously, you went through your own troubles, which you document in the book. You've, you've been sober for quite a while now. Um, you're focusing more on your, your, you know, activism and stuff like that rather than the music, even though you're still creating music. Um, it feels like that sort of comes first for you now. Do yeah. you think you've, you've sort of, you, you look at life differently? I mean, regarding music, for better or worse, the world has forced me to see music as a spiritual hobby that I love. You know, like I certainly don't think of music as a way to make money because it isn't. You know, if I make a record, I don't expect anyone to buy it. I'm pleasantly surprised if anyone listens to it. So I love making music. and I love making records, but I don't really expect anyone to pay attention. So and then there was a time when, you know, going to parties and being famous and dating movie stars and yelling at my accountant over tax bills, like all that seemed really important. And then I took a step back and I was like, but when things worked out, you know, I found myself at the perfect party or dating the perfect person or on the perfect vacation, I wasn't terribly happy. Mm-hmm. And so then I asked that question, like, well, why am I making such a huge effort to sort of craft and cultivate and maintain this life when even at its best, it's not very good, Yeah, you know? And then you look, and I started looking around. I started looking at other aging musicians and aging actors and aging successful people, and they all seem pretty miserable, you know? The happy ones are the ones whose well-being comes from friendship, spirituality, purpose, health, and usually simple things, mm-hmm. you know, like playing with a dog, or eating a meal that you really love, or working on a cause that you really care about. So I just simply stopped caring about fame and tried to not be driven by ego. I mean, I still am, but mm. putting it in perspective. Have you seen that documentary? There's one, I think it's called, um, I think it's called Happy or something like that. Yeah. I love that documentary. Yeah. I would say, like, I love my work. But I love the work. I love making music because I love making music. Yeah. I don't expect anything from it. Um, and my activism, whether it's, you know, election activism, political activism, animal activism, environmental activism, these are just things that seem really important to me. And so working on them is really satisfying. Mm-hmm. But again, it's not for personal benefit. And I think maybe that's the difference. It's like the question isn't, what you're doing but why you're doing it and what you hope to get from it and I suppose you've always been interested in politics and you Mm -hmm. know activism in general but I suppose you've just moved it all around slightly haven't you and like you say focus less on the fame and more on the other stuff I agree with what you're saying but it's not for esoteric reasons Mm -hmm. it's simply based on evidence yeah you know it's like looking at actions my own actions other people's actions and saying oh well I'm doing one thing 
and it's making me unhappy. And when other people do that same thing, it makes them unhappy. So why do we keep doing it? If it's enlightenment, it's the most simple, self-evident type of enlightenment. We're simply Mm -hmm. saying, like, I remember my mom had this friend growing up who was this crazy hippie. And when I was like seven or eight years old, this woman, Janet, pulled me aside and she said, can I give you a piece of advice? And I was like, sure, crazy hippie. And she said, she would start bending her arm and she said, if it hurts when you go like this, don't go like this. Okay. You know, and I was like, oh, okay. But we, no one has learned from that. What did Einstein say? I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, you know, the definition of mental illness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. You seem like you're in a really good place at the moment. Are you, are you happy? I mean, apart from the fact, well, yes, but in a very weird way, as much as happiness is a nice thing, it's actually not that important to me. You know, a sense of purpose and curiosity and somehow trying to be of service, like those are more important to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, I'm a selfish person. I like being happy. You know, like I like sitting down on my couch and watching Stranger Things and eating popcorn. Like, that's nice. You know, I'm not some totally altruistic monk, but happiness just isn't that much of a priority. Mm. You don't sit down much. I've seen your Instagram posts. You're always making music. You're always doing stuff. It's great. And I I love your Trump ranting. That's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that it's ranting, but at what point isn't it ranting? Like, for example, like if things are terrible and you're yelling about it, like that actually seems like a rational response to things being terrible. And do you know what the boiling frog theory is? Mm -hmm. There's this theory that if you took a frog, and hopefully no one's ever done this, you took a frog and threw it in boiling water, it would do everything in its power to get out. But if you take a frog and put it in room temperature water and slowly incrementally raise the temperature, it will boil to death without knowing that it's boiling to death. And it's kind of, I think, where we are as a culture, as a species, you know, like, especially in the United States, like, Mm -hmm. people have become way too accustomed to things being terrible. You know, people are accustomed to, you know, no health care, a mentally ill president, gun violence on every corner, crumbling roads, like the United States is falling apart, and people are just sitting by and largely accepting it, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's all they've ever known. Like, in a way, Europe and mo- many other smaller countries have the benefit of going to other countries. You know, like if you live in the UK, you can go to France in an hour and a half. You can go to Belgium in two hours. You can, you know, get anywhere. And whereas in the United States, people don't leave. No. You know, so like most Americans, if they go to a, crum- a terrible hospital or a terrible school in the United States, or they hear about gun violence, they just assume that's the case everywhere. Whereas like when I went on tour, all my years of touring, like you go to countries like you go to Australia and their roads are in good shape. The airports are nice. The hospitals are nice. The people are well-educated and you realize, oh, there are different ways of living, Yeah. you know? And I feel like England, the UK is interesting. Like, because of course the UK is similar to many countries like France and the United States is fairly provincial. But I feel like a lot of people in the UK over the last 20 or 30 years have traveled. And when they come back to the UK, they're like, oh, 
wow, the food was really good in Italy. Why isn't there good food in the UK? And then suddenly there is good food in the UK. Yes, you know, yes. they're like, wow, there's great architecture in Sweden. Now there's great architecture in the UK. It's almost like people left and brought back higher standards. Mm. And people in America don't leave. Yeah. So they don't know any better. It's true. It's true. You mentioned touring. Um, you, we talked about animal rights. You um, toured with Soundgarden and the Chili Peppers. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Uh, it was great. I mean, when I... I toured in 1995 with the Chili Peppers and the Flaming Lips. And at that point, the Chili Peppers were sober vegans. And so every night we all had vegan dinner together. Perfect. It was lovely. And then I toured with Soundgarden. And they, this is oftentimes the case, the sort of like the tough rock gods, as I'm sure you've encountered many times, are sweet nerds. You know, and so like they've learned to present themselves as being tough. Like I remember seeing pictures of Soundgarden and they just they looked menacing and tough. And then you hang out with them and they were just the nicest, goofiest people on the planet. Yeah. You know, I mean, like I remember seeing pictures of Kim from Soundgarden thinking like he looked like super scary. He's such a gentle nerd. And Chris Cornell as well was so sweet, just like this innocent, gentle creature, Mm. which is often oddly enough the sort of the hard rock metal guys I've met tend to actually be a little more sort of sweet and nerdy than a lot of the electronic musician people I've met. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Like, it's, I mean, I spent a couple of days with Ozzy Osbourne in the studio years ago, and he was very delicate, like quite gentle, Yeah. you know, more so than almost any of the sort of EDM DJs I've met. Yeah. I think it's Sharon. Yeah. that um, keeps him mm-hmm. on the uh, straight and narrow. Um, was, what, have you got a f- and you, cause you covered the Soundgarden track, didn't you? Dust, or you didn't cover it, you remix. sampled it, yeah. I did a remix for them, and it was really sweet. I remember this conversation with Chris Cornell after he heard the remix. He was like, wow, I love that remix. And he said, what are you going to do with it? And I looked at him and I said, you do know it's your remix. Like, I did it for you. But he didn't, it took him a while to figure that out. <laughs> I've read, and I don't know if it's true, were you going to produce Guns N' Roses' album um, after just after Slash left? Yeah, I spent a while with Axel and the remaining members of Guns in a studio in L.A., and I realized I couldn't do it. Like, it was just too big of a job. Yeah. They're working on Chinese democracy, and this was 1997. And they needed a real producer, and I was not a real producer. So I was very flattered that they asked me, but I just knew that they needed a Bob Rock or someone who really understood how to work in that world, and I didn't. Well, you'd still be there now making it, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I did make one suggestion that they didn't like very much. Right. Because even in 97, they were frustrated with the results. And I said, okay, how about this? Book a studio in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, Yeah. simple old studio with a tape machine, no Pro Tools, no nothing, and you spend two weeks making the record. And at the end of those two weeks, the record's done. Okay. And I said, and there's yeah. no click track. There's no vocal tuning. There's no nothing. You make the record the way you made Appetite, and that's your record. I kind of still wish they'd done that, but they didn't. So what do you think your greatest achievement as a musician is? Mm-hmm. Making songs that people have emotional reactions to. Uh 
yeah, I think, and it's different for different people. Mm-hmm. But that's the goal is to like make a piece of music that reaches people in a way and a time and a place that is really, really intimate and hopefully important. So would you do anything differently? I would basically, I'm not a great engineer. So I kind of wish that I had made better sounding records working with good engineers. Because I sometimes get lazy and Mm -hmm. I just make records that sound pretty good. And I think that I wish I had made better sounding records. Really? Yeah. But they do sound good. They sound okay, but compared to like really great sounding records, I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever made a really great sounding record. So what's a good sounding record in your opinion? Oh, I mean, everything from the first four Led Zeppelin albums mm. to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Deja Vu. To, I mean, like tons and I mean, like there, there's so many great sounding records. I just don't think I've ever approached that. Yeah, sure. Okay, um, and one final question, really. What um, what song would you like played at your funeral? Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, like, because there's so many to choose from. Yeah. Uh, possibly Morning Has Broken by Cat Stevens. Really? Yeah, that's what my mom had at her funeral. Yeah. Even though I actually wasn't at her funeral, but like, I, I know I read in the like book. A nice continuation if I did yeah. the same thing. Okay, morning has broken. Cat Stevens, I love it. What a great choice, <laughs> Moby. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Morning has broken like the first morning. Blackbird has spoken like the first bird. Oh, I'll tell you what, I could get used to doing all my interviews in the California sun by the pool. Moby there chatting to me at his home. To make sure you don't miss other episodes of Music and Me, hit the subscribe button and follow me on Instagram as well, at Kylie Olsen. See you soon. Music and Me is produced by the Podcast Works and Some Media.